Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, April 2nd, 2015. Man, I'm thinking about what's coming up in the next two weeks. It's that time of the year again. And if you haven't been listening to Fighting for the Faith for a year yet, oh boy, <laughs> let me explain what's coming. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy and bizarre things being said out there, and we help teach you sound biblical exegesis and hermeneutics, how to put God's Word back into context to notice that what God's Word really says is so much better than what so many people are saying that it says. In fact, the reason for that is because they are twisting God's Word. And so we try to untwist it, show you what it really says, properly distinguish between law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, the difference between a man-centered and a Christ-centered hermeneutic, in order to open your eyes so that you can really understand what God's Word says and so that you can test for yourself whether or not the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-styled prophets, authors, and folks put out by the evangelical industrial complexes, those whom we need to be listening to, to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says when we read it in context and over and again, we show that, well... (laughs) What they're saying is not what God's Word says at all. So uh, let's talk about what's coming for the next two weeks. Uh, If you haven't been listening to Fighting for the Faith for a whole year yet, then the next two weeks might come as a little bit of a shock for you, especially not next week, but the week after. Let me explain. This is the time of the year when most churches celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You've heard of this holiday, Easter? Yeah. Anyway, uh, so uh, what happens is is that the Easter sermon gives a perfect opportunity, like once a year, when you can tell whether or not the church truly is proclaiming Christ, the pastor is proclaiming Christ, or if he's proclaiming himself or something else. Uh, And (laughs) every year what we do is uh, the week after Easter— We do only, and I I mean this, only good Easter sermons. So uh, keep this in mind. If 
Sunday rolls around and you're in church and your pastor just knocks it out of the park. And what I mean is he proclaims Christ and him crucified for our sins, proclaims Christ bodily raised from the grave, and is exalting and proclaiming Jesus in his saving office on Easter Sunday, well, then send me a link, because what we're going to do next week, it's all good Easter sermons. So, And we'll, what we'll do is we'll take the opportunity to uh, pull some of them apart so that you can understand what is it exactly that makes a good sermon. Why do I consider a sermon to be a good sermon? So that's going to be next week. Only good Easter sermons, and we're, we I like to get them from across the spectrum. So, you know, it doesn't matter to me if the guy's Lutheran, Reformed, uh, Reformed Baptist, and a faithful evangelical who pro- who rightly proclaims Christ in his saving office. doesn't matter. If it's an excellent uh, Easter sermon, we want to hear it, and uh, we will put the best up. Now, we don't vote on on those, but the week after next week is going to be our annual Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. And we've, oh, <laughs> in years past, we have had some zinger doodles of like really awful sermonage. Now, some people take offense that we we make a contest out of this, and and I understand this. If this offends you, you know, then just tune out during the uh, the uh, the sermon reviews during the uh, the the week after next. And uh, but what we do is. We, you know, I will have my own picks, and I got to tell you, you know, every every year for the last four years, the sermon that I thought would win, and by winning I mean it lost badly. Every, you know, for the last four years, the sermon that I was really thinking would be the one that would win didn't. And no joke, something else won. And so, uh, you know, the idea is that, and if you, you know, were unfortunate enough to be exposed to awful. Preaching, you know, for example, um, you know, kind of the standard way of twisting the uh, the resurrection, you know, around Easter time is for people to say, "And Jesus, by raising from the dead, shows you that God has the power to raise the dead dreams in your life and to give you a destiny <laughs> and a purpose." And uh, yeah, if you hear something like that, send me the link. And we will put it into the link into the mix. And I got to tell you, we preview every single uh, you know sermon entry, uh, and then you know, and so it's kind of a mix between the ones I've found as well as what the listeners have submitted. And uh, in some days, if the if the if the bad sermons are really short, what we might do is we might play more than one. We've done that as well, where we've had six or seven contestants at the end of the week, and then at the end of the Friday after next, so two weeks from tomorrow, we will open up voting, and the voting will be o- uh, open for a whole week. So uh, keep that in mind, and you'll vote over at fightingforthefaith.com. Is uh, we'll put up a, you know, like one of those Google things where you can, you know, you can, you know, select the one that you want to vote for, and then the winner of the contest. No joke, the winner of the contest. We send them a copy of Michael Horton's book, Christless Christianity. Um, they also get a note from me. Um, in years past, I've sent... <laughs> this is... I don't know if this is confession or not, but uh, I, in years past, I've been known to send 30 pieces of fake silver uh, along with their book. Um, 
you can figure out the symbolic significance of that. Uh, the idea being is is that we want those who win the contest to know that they not only were it, uh, were in the running, but that they won. And uh, in the in the email explaining why they won, you know, I kind of walk through what was so bad about their sermon and called them to repent and to preach Christ and stop, you know, twisting God's word. So yeah, that's. <laughs> That's what we do every year here at Fighting for the Faith. This year is no different. So brace yourself. Next week, it'll be nothing but good sermons, no, no, all good. And we'll take a couple of them apart so you can kind of take, and I'll try to, uh, the ones we take apart, I'll try to pull, you know, take the different styles because there's different sermon styles out there. There's kind of a more expository style. There's a homiletic, a homily style. There's different styles. So we'll take a look at the different styles for the different people who are featured as uh, as good sermons for uh, for Easter next week. So that's what we're going to be doing. Brace yourself. It's, I wish I could say it's a lot of fun. Uh, I enjoy next week. I enjoy the week after Easter. It's the uh, the week that follows that, oi, oi, <laughs> it has me pulling my hair out. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really, you know, it's kind of like finding different varieties of the worst kinds of sermons you can possibly think of. And, uh, and so, yeah, that's what we're going to do. Um, just want to prepare you for that. Let's talk about what we're going to do today, switching gears here. We're going to start with a, a William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the End Times update. Uh, if you remember last week, there was a, um, there, there was a plane crash. Uh, apparently, uh, the co-pilot, uh, you know, this is a German Wings aircraft, uh, Airbus that got flown into the Alps. Um, apparently, you know, the pilot, lo- the co-pilot locked the pilot out and then just took the thing into the ground. And, uh, of course, William Tapley is always giving us the prophetic significance of major news stories. And, uh, so we're going to check in with William Tapley to see what the prophetic significant significance is of, uh, this, uh, German wings plane crash. Uh, then we're going to switch gears. Uh, we're going to be listening to somebody we've never listened to before here. Her name is Sandy Schober, and she's from Gateway Family Church in, uh, Carbon, uh, Glen Carbon, Illinois. And, um, this is one of those messages that could really be misconstrued. Uh, that's it, It's all about giving the Father pleasure. So we're going to listen to her weird take on Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Um, and then uh, sometime, you know, the, the remaining part of the hour, uh, we're, we're going to check in with uh, Larry Huck and uh, listen to uh, his uh, false teaching, which I'm labeling uh, Larry Huck's Passover payday. Yeah, because, you know, Larry Huck is one of these guys, he never, you know, misses an opportunity to use an old covenant uh, festival day uh, to, you know, rake in the cash and and tell people to send money to him. And, of course, his wife Tiz is along for the uh, ride, and, and I always describe what she does. You know, it's not even color commentary. She's more like the... Uh, the cheering section there on Larry Huck's television ministry, and uh, she, you know, and you can just tell it's like you know she's got big dollar signs in her eyes. Come on, baby, preach it! Oh man, I, I, I think we're finally going to be able to get that leather upgrade in our private jet. Oh yeah, we're going to get that additional room on our, on our, uh, uh, you know, on our Bahama, uh, you know, condominium or something. You know, I don't know if they have any of these things, but you kind of get the idea. But woo. That's when or that's what her function is, and then in hour number two, do something we haven't done in a while. We're gonna uh, review a, uh, a a sermon by Brian Houston of Hillsong out in uh, Sydney, 
And uh, this is an interesting one. There's some very bizarre scripture twisting going on here. He reads biblical texts, well, at least refers to them, and and then just launches off and goes off in a, di- a different direction altogether. This is what uh, Pastor Brian M- Wolfmuller describes as the heresy two-step. Yeah, it's it's a, I think a move. Uh, it's a dance, you know, move basically started in Texas, and the heresy two-step is is you put the uh, put the biblical text down on the ground and then you shimmy to the right or shimmy to the left and just ignore what's actually in the text. And uh, Brian Houston does this quite well. And the name of the uh, sermon we'll be listening to is entitled No Other Name. So that will be how we spend today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I strongly suggest that you make yourself comfortable. And uh, since we're going to be beginning with a William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and Co-Prophet of the End Times update, well, everybody knows what that means. That means we have to start by doing this. Doom and gloom coming soon. Listen to Third Eagle's is telling us the end is coming soon very soon you'll see signs up in the sun and stars and moon doom and gloom very soon rapture comes at night or noon oh no i'm singing doom and gloom very soon if you're ready you will meet the bride and groom yeah, I've been doing this long enough that those lyrics have a tendency to get stuck in my head. So anyway, the name of the video that we will be listening to from William Tapley, him giving us the prophetic angle on the uh, German wings plane crash, is entitled Satan Attacks Mary in Psychotropic Plane Crash. Uh, yeah, and you know, he starts off this uh, this video sounding almost sane, you know, and then takes just a wild left turn. Yeah, you'll see it as we go. Here we go. Here's William Tapley. Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the co-prophet of these end times. On this program, I want to talk about how that German Wings airliner was actually brought down by Satan because the pilot was under a demonic influence. Okay, so <laughs> maybe I misconstrued. <laughs> okay, what? Okay, so aside from that first, <laughs> that first sentence, yes, it was brought down by Satan because the guy was under psychotropic drug influence. Um, aside from that open that that, that first statement, what proceeds kind of sounds lucid. <laughs> yeah, I may not have properly <laughs> noted the first sentence that he gives in that. Sorry about that, but <laughs> we continue. Now, that's not what the media is going to tell you. What the media is going to tell you is what they just reported on this morning. Today is Friday, March the 27th. And that is that Andreas Lubitz, that pilot, was under psychiatric care. And what that means is that he was on psychotropic drugs. It's a little bit of a leap, but we'll say, okay, sure. We'll say people under psychiatric care generally today um, may be given, uh, you know, meds for their um, for their mental illnesses. Okay, I, I'm with you, kind of. It is a well-known side effect of psychotropic drugs that they cause suicide, 
mass murder in some cases, in my opinion, no one on those drugs should ever be allowed to fly airplanes or drive buses or even automobiles. Okay, I'm, I'm with you. Opinion. Now, let me read this article, and this was published this morning on the Internet, and this is from AFP. The dateline is from Berlin. The German wing's co-pilot said to have deliberately crashed his Airbus with 149 others, 150 in total, including the pilot, into the French Alps suffered serious depression six years ago, German Daily Bild reported Friday. The co-pilot sought psychiatric help for a bout of heavy depression in 2009 and, now listen to this, was still getting assistance, that's a euphemism, assistance from doctors, the newspaper said. Quoting, uh, that's a euphemism? I mean, getting assistance from doctors is just a way of saying he was being treated for his depression. R- am I wrong on that? Documents from Germany's air transport regulator, LBA. Andreas Lubitz, 28, was receiving, listen to this, regular individualized medical treatment. Well, they don't tell you, but that's psychotropic drugs. Okay. Bild reported, adding that German Wing's parent company, Lufthansa, had transmitted this information to the LBA. Lufthansa CEO Karsten Spohr said that Lubitz had suspended his pilot training, which began in 2008 for a certain period, but did not give more details. Lubitz later continued and was able to qualify for the Airbus 320 in 2013. Bill said that during the period of his training setback, Lubitz had suffered depressions and anxiety attacks. That's in plural, not just one bout of depression. Two properties used by Lubitz in Western Germany were searched by police late Thursday as officials seek clues into how the outwardly level-headed pilot could have decided to commit what is thought to have been suicide and mass murder. Well, suicide and mass murder, as I said, are well-known side effects of psychotropic drugs. Okay, so I'll grant the premise, even though I am not a medical, a mental health professional, but I'll say, okay, sure, no problem. Well, I'll grant you your premise, but <laughs> where do we go from here is uh, the next question. And all I can say is hang on to your hats. Now the question is, will the pharmaceutical companies sweep this new development under the rug? And now I want to talk about a possibility that the news media will never discuss. And that is that Andrea Lubitz may have been under demonic influence. Okay. In fact, I believe a lot of psychiatric cases are actually a product of Satan's work. He hates humanity. Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning. I believe the demons hide under these so-called psychotropic drugs. Uh, Okay. 
In the New Testament, how did Jesus handle mental problems? He cast out demons. Nowhere does he give people psychotropic drugs. Yeah, no, and and Jesus, you know, when people were sick, I think of, you know, Peter's mother-in-law, she was sick, and she had a fever, and, you know, Jesus didn't give her a Tylenol either. Um, no, he, he just, he just healed her. Um, and so I, apparently using this logic, Tylenol is out of the question too, you know? Yes. He cures the lame. He lets the blind see, but as far as people acting crazy, he casts out demons and that's for Yeah. Okay. Important. Is that what caused Andrea Lubitz to crash this airplane. Now, here's another news report. Lubitz, courteous in the first part of the trip, became curt when the captain began the mid-flight briefing on the planned landing. That is a very telling news report. Yeah, what does it tell? The co-pilot, Andrea Lubitz, becoming curt is when the demon entered in. <laughs> so at that moment, you know, with curtness you know, happening, that meant that a demon had entered him at that very moment. Right. That's when he took over. That is when he decided to crash the plane. It's very interesting, those reports that his breathing was not affected. He did not panic. He was being told exactly what to do by Satan. And now, why would Satan crash this particular airplane? I have no idea. What would the reason for that be? In my opinion, he has inadvertently shown his hand. That, that would be Satan. He attacked this plane because there were 150 passengers on board. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Satan was scouring the skies of planet Earth. And there he spotted a German Wings Airbus with 150 people. And Satan said, I can't stand that 150 people. I'm going to have to possess the co-pilot and make him crash it into the ground. Uh, yeah, no, this isn't working for me. Satan hates that number, 150. <laughs> Who knew? I, I had no idea Satan hated the number 150. Why does he hate the number 150, William? Why? Because there are 150 Hail Marys in a five-decade, three-mystery rosary. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Whew. Yeah, so uh, 150 Hail Marys in a five-decade rosary. Yeah, I totally did not know that because I've never once the rosary or any decades of the rosary at all wow if only i had you know been doing the rosary i would have realized you know this is a number the devil really hates okay 15 decades 
150 Hail Marys. The number 15 is what you get when you put 3 over 2. Yeah. God over man. Yeah. And as you know, 2 over 3, or man over God, yields the fraction 666. Uh huh. Yeah, why is 6 afraid of... Uh... Why is six afraid of seven? Because seven, eight, nine. Yeah, yeah. Whew. Yes, amazing stuff you got going on here. Why Satan hates the number 15, and by extension, the number 150. Right. Nor is this the first time this has occurred. No. Back in 2008, 2009, Satan caused a whole series of plane crashes, seven or eight of them. Mm. And I did a playlist on this, and I will put the link below. I'm frightened about this. And he always attacked either 150 passengers or 153 passengers or some other number associated with Mary's Rosary. And now uh-huh. here. Could it possibly be that you have certain airplanes, that if the flight is sold out, that there are 150 passenger seats on those airplanes? So that would be kind of a common number of passengers on certain types of flights. I mean, that just kind of makes sense to me. Um, you know, so this 150, just really, if you were to look at it, that you could say, well, the Airbus with a maximum capacity, uh, you know, has 150 passengers on it. And, you know, that Airbus could be flown by Lufthansa, by Virgin Atlantic. It could be flown by US Air. I mean, just name the air. And so, you know, when there's different, when there's a, you know, a series of plane crashes and the number of people who perish in those class uh, crashes, you know, all comes closely to the number 150. It just tells me that that's kind of a standard number of passengers on particular types of airplanes. But of course, you know, William Tapley, he's uh, Johnny on the spot in giving us what he believes the prophetic insights as to what's going on there. So if you didn't know that the uh, German wings plane crash last week in the Alps was really uh, uh, an attack by Satan against a plane that would dare to have the number of passengers that equaled 15 decades in a in a rosary. Um, <laughs> well, now you know, and uh, this is very, very useful information. I'm sure this will help you become a better and deeper uh, uh, disciple of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me, regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. We got a, a person from the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information at Syndicate, first timer. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Church Day Select. 
And now, Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater proudly presents Sessions with Mildred. Now, Mildred, I have some very important information to show you in this next video. It's going to give you the tools necessary to know if you're hearing directly from God. But anyways, Dr. Barbie, we are going to talk today about symbols. Yes, I love symbols. Because oftentimes God speaks in symbols. So outside of symbols, what are some of the ways that God speaks to his people? Well, major ways through his word. But his Holy Spirit speaks to us and communicates to it through a symbolic language, through even signposts on the highways, through music, through the dance, through nature. The other day I was at your home and a dove kept flying by the window. And to me it was the Holy Spirit bringing messages through the dove appearing, which represents the Holy Spirit. So as you can see, Mildred, God talks to us in many, many, many ways in everyday life, which is why... I got you this. A Cracker Jack prize? Yes. I mean, no. Do you have any idea how many box tops I had to send in for this thing? Um, no. It was a lot. It doesn't matter. Anyway, what you see before you is, in fact, your very own Holy Spirit decoder ring. What does it do? What doesn't it do? When I turn it on, it has the ability to warn you when the Holy Spirit is trying to give you an important message. Like what? <laughs> I'll show you. We know that the Holy Spirit can talk to us in all kinds of ways. He could even be trying to send me a message through this radio right now. I'm on the to hell. Hold on, let me change the station. for now <laughs> let me help you turn on the ring i have a great idea why don't you take it out for a test drive aren't you gonna come with me <laughs> you know i can't leave being under house arrest is so much fun if i were to leave my house for more than 20 seconds then the cops would show up and tase me again and who wants that? Now here's how the ring works. When it beeps like this, that means that there's a sign that you need to see in the area around you. Um, Mr. Sunshine, when the ring goes off, how am I going to know what the message is? Trust me, you'll know. It'll be so obvious that you won't miss it. And on top of that, the ring will make this sound when you've guessed it correctly. It couldn't be simpler. You are now free to leave. I'm really sorry to have to bother you at your house. They told me that these sessions are a part of the pastor's vision and that if I don't go, it will be a sin against God. You think that somebody under house arrest would be free from any and all ministerial obligations, but no! I guess that would make too much sense. I'm sorry that I caused you so much pain. It's all your... I mean, not your fault. <laughs> my, my, look at the sun. It's time for you to go. Have fun with the decoder ring! I wonder when this is going to go off. 
I see a McDonald's. I see a sign twirler dressed up as a hot dog. And I see the town park. You want me to go to the park? Okay. Um, there's a dog eating grass. His owner is picking up the poop, and there's a bird flying towards the road. Is the bird a message? The little bird just got hit by the truck. I think I get the message. Uh, all I see now is a couple having a picnic by the pond. You are such a jerk! I think they just broke up. Um, there's a tetherball court, but there's no tetherball or rope, it's just a pole. I don't see any kind of message here. I think you're broken. I'm gonna take you off my finger now. Oh no, it's stuck. I'm gonna have to go get some soap from the bathroom. I can't let you do that, Mildred. Oh dear, it's become self-aware. Mildred, you and I are bonded as one. I am an instrument here to reveal his secrets to you. I will deliver his messages to you, for it is his will that you should know them. We are going to be together forever. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that so much of what passes as biblical insight is nothing but really subterfuge. Don't know what that word means? Google it. 
just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. That's it, to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. And if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. Moving along. Time for a Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate Update. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there, when I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts, there they are standing in a row, big ones, small ones, some as big as your head, give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts, every ball you throw will make me rich. There stands me wife, the idol of me life, singing roly bowl a ball a penny a pitch. Singing roly bowl a ball a penny a pitch. Singing roly bowl a ball a penny a pitch. Roly bowl a ball, roly bowl a ball, singing roly bowl a ball a penny a pitch. That's right, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. I'm so glad we added that into the mix for our Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate updates. Now, new person to join the syndicate, I think she's been a part of it for a while, and as I understand, she has some connection to Rod Parsley. But the lady we'll be listening to, her name is Pastor, Pastor Sandy Schober, which, by the way, any woman claiming to be a pastor should tell you something. She's in direct defiance of the express clear passages of scripture that say women are not to be pastors. So uh we've we've got a problem right off the bat, but she also claims to be receiving direct, you know, revelation from God the Holy Spirit. And uh, this is from her uh her sermon entitled Perfect Heart, and you can find this over at uh, gatewayfamilychurch.com and they are out of Glen Carbon, Illinois. So uh she's going to explain to us well, kind of a legalistic uh, revelation from God the Holy Spirit that we need to be um, uh, bringing God pleasure. And this is one of those messages that could be misconstrued. But uh, here's Sandy Schober to explain this revelation that God laid on her heart to share with uh, Gateway Family Church. Here we go. If you have your Bible today, turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 4. As I was seeking the Lord and praying this week, for many weeks, matter of fact, the Lord has been speaking this to me many, maybe months now. So the Lord has been speaking this to her. Okay. He has told me, he says, you know, I created you. Yes. My breath gave you life. Okay. I created you. And I created you to give me pleasure. And I thought about that, and I started meditating upon it. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, are you giving your father pleasure? This could be uh, really misunderstood. 
Are you a pleasure to him? Are you a joy to him? What, what are you doing to give him pleasure? And as you sit in the sanctuary this morning, I want to ask you a question. Are you giving your God pleasure? Um, how am I, am I supposed to go about doing that? And if you are not sure you are, I'm going to give you the steps that he gave me. Oh, lucky me. So plainly, that would give your God pleasure. Okay. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and they were created. Yes, that's what that text says. You didn't twist it, um, although it is out of context. Um, so... Are there steps revealed hiddenly inside of this verse about what I need to be doing? So I can look at you this morning and I can say very plainly, according to the word of God, that he created you for his pleasure. What is pleasure? It's joy, enjoyment, delight. You are his very delight. You are his joy. And I want to continually give my God joy. I want him to know that I give him pleasure. I want him to look down upon me and say, that's my daughter. So you do this by your works, not by grace through faith on account of Christ. That's kind of the assumption there, isn't it? It's something I've got to do. Okay. Do you see her? She gives me pleasure. She's my daughter, and I love her so much. And the number one, number one way to give your God pleasure is worship. Worship. So if you're not worshiping, you're not giving God pleasure. And if you're not a worshiper, oh, I can't worship the Lord. I'm too shy. You think I'm going to lift my hands. I'm going to give him glory. Worship is telling God who he is to you, who he is, not what he can give you or what he's done for you, but you declare his greatness. You declare who he is. The book of Revelation is full of worship. It's full of... Well, yeah, there is quite a bit of worship in the book of Revelation. Glory. It's full of honor. It's full of power. And if you... Yeah, but when I read Revelation chapter 4, it doesn't say, and now step one, here's how you give God pleasure. Enjoy. No, it, it's, yeah, worship is number one. See, you're strip mining this for so-called hidden principles that are not actually in the text. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. It says, they sang a new song. They sang that. Yeah, so you skipped from Revelation 4.11 to chapter 5, verse 9. Just just hopscotched over there without any regard for the context. Do you, do you think that God's word was ever meant to be read in the way you're preaching it? where you just rip a passage out here and rip a passage out there and, and you know, just just skip all the stuff that you don't want to talk about. You know, is that how God intended his word to be read and to be preached? Not that you should be preaching. That song, you got to find a song that you can sing to your God. So I got to find a song that I can sing. I got to go. I, see, now I got something. To do. I got to go find a song, you know. How about a mighty fortress is... Uh, does that count? Because, you know... Eh. They sang a new song and said, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals, for thou wast slain, and thou hast redeemed me by thy blood. 
He has redeemed you by his blood that you will never see a devil's hell. Is that not enough reason to worship your God? Well, yeah, that's the gospel there. And yes, I think worship then would follow from gratitude and thanks and praising him for what Christ has done for us. But you're kind of playing this kind of in a heavy-handed, manipulative kind of way. You know what I mean? But you might say this morning, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know the prayers I prayed and he didn't answer. You don't know what I, I, I desired something and it never happened. You don't know what somebody's talked about me or said to me. But I can tell you one thing, whether my God ever answers a prayer for me, whether he ever does anything for me, I will declare his greatness and I will declare his glory. Because I love him with my whole heart and my whole soul and my whole being. So for Yeah, well, aren't you great? Yeah. Notice who she's really preaching about there. Not Jesus and really telling us what he's done for us, but really she's preaching about herself there. Get about what has happened in your past, and I know it's not an easy thing to do. But you can do it if you will get your worship going. Because in the midst of... You can do it if you will get your... So, yeah, list, yeah, to-do list, number one. You better start worshiping. Worship, everything falls off of you that has tried to attach itself to you. And where does the Bible say that? That things will fall off of me if I start worshiping? Every hurt, every bitterness, everything that the enemy has brought in your life just falls off. Because when you're... How about unwanted pounds? Will those fall off if I worship? In his presence, there's fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. For thou hast redeemed us out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made us kings and priests unto our God, and we shall reign on this earth. And then he goes on to say, he goes on to say, I, I, I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders are all in magnificent, splendid worship. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands. And they said with a loud voice, thou art worthy. They're declaring his greatness. They're declaring who he is. Thou art worthy to receive everything I can declare with my mouth. Thou art worthy for thou was slain. You have redeemed us. You're everything I can declare with my mouth. Your blood has bought me. Your blood has rescued me. I'm alive because of you. The very breath I breathe, the very air I breathe is permeated with your being. You are my air. You are my life. You are everything to me. You are worthy to receive all power, all power, all riches, all, all blessings, all glory, all honor, all of it is yours. And that's what worship is. When, when Jesus met the lady in, in John 4 at the well and she was so busy, she had, she had her bucket and she was there going to get water. Yeah. And what did he tell her? He says he's looking, God is looking for the worshipers. Uh-huh, he's looking. So you better get busy and start worshiping, you know. Otherwise, you're not giving, giving God joy and pleasure. And, well, you know, if, you, if you're not doing that, then, you know, you may not hear, well done, good and faithful servant, you know. Well, worship him in spirit and truth. He's looking for that one. 
And when he sees you and you're here in the sanctuary, here in your home, and you've got your hands lifted up and you're declaring God who he is. He is all, all power. He is all riches. He is all wisdom. He is all strength. He is all honor. He is all glory. He is everything you declare him to be in your life. Who you said he is, that's who he will be to you. But you must open your mouth and de- uh, what? declare something. Oh, so I better open my mouth and start declaring because what I declare is who he'll be for me. Yeah, I, I don't see that in Revelation 4.11 or Revelation 5 verse 9. Where are you getting some of this stuff? And so they sang that new song. They sang that glory. And when the lady at the well encountered Jesus, the living God, she dropped her water pot after their conversation and she left it there. She forgot about the natural water that she was going to get. And she ran into the city and she declared who, and she declared. who he is yeah, okay. to everyone around. A little bit of word of faith heresy going on in there. Sometimes we carry this big water pot around. I'm, I generally don't do that, except for during like the winter. You know, we have a humidifier in the house, and I have to fill up the tanks on that thing a couple times a day. Whew, schlepping water. And in each tank, you know, there's two of them, and it's like, it holds 1.6 gallons. So, you know, it's, whew, the schlepping of the uh, humidifier tanks. Yeah, that, I guess that's kind of like buckets of water. It's full of unbelief. It's full of hurts. It's full of sorrows. No, actually, it's it's water that I put in the, those, you know. It's full of the things we go in through our life and we're carrying it around. But when we encounter a living God in our worship, we can drop it. And so I can drop, once I encounter the living God, I can drop the water things, right? We can forget about the earth water. Uh, huh. Where... <laughs> I hate to ask, where did you go to seminary, Sandy? And we can take of some heavenly water, some heavenly life. In the book of... Yeah, I think... <laughs> she goes on, there's uh, the three more steps that you've got to do. Um, yeah, and this kind of shows you that uh, she's not really paying attention to what those biblical texts actually are saying. She's making... She, she reads it, and then she just zings you know, off in her own direction, you know, so... But, of course, God laid it on her heart to share these things. So, I mean, who am I to question that? But uh, I think you get the point. Moving along. Here we go. Time for a money-grubbing televangelist update. Don't want no loving. Don't want no kissing. Don't want no gal to call me honey. Don't want my name in the Hall of Fame. Just want a big, fat pile of money. Give me that almighty dollar for that lettuce, hear me holler. Give me buckets full of ducats. Let me walk around and waller in Mazuma. Eldenero, want to be a millionaire. Give me money, 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 money. I want that green ammunition. That's the stuff for which I'm wishing. Fill my closets with deposits. I'm a demon in addition. Give me shekels, give me pesos. Let me see their smiling faces. Money, 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 money. Want to get me a suit? That's made out of loot and whistle for wearing it green. I got that monetary itis like beaches like King Midas. Want that golden touch is what I mean. Give me that old double eagle. Want that tender that is legal and financially substantially. Any sum I can and beagle. Want a living regal splendor for that loving legal tender. Money, 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 money. 
All right, that's Dr. Teeth and money, 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 money. Now we're coming up on, well, the Passover, and you know what that means. It means it's time for payday. That's right. There's three times a year there in the Mosaic Covenant, which is now done away with. Mosaic Covenant, Christ has fulfilled it. Um, that, but there are three, three feast days uh, you know, that are associated with the Mosaic Covenant where the people of Israel... Back in the times of the Mosaic Covenant, were ordered by God through the Mosaic Covenant to appear before him in Jerusalem. And they are the Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, and uh, I want to say Yom Kippur, but I, I, I may be wrong on that one. But uh, yeah, it, Larry Huck will ex- explain to us some of the finer details there. But uh, oh, yes, yeah, so we got you know, anyway. And the, the idea being, uh, the idea being is, is that, well, according to Larry Huck, you know, this is all about divine appointments so that you can be blessed. Because, you know, if you miss your appointment, but here's the issue is if you pay attention to the fine print in the Mosaic Covenant regarding the Passover, uh huh, there is only one city on earth where you can celebrate the Passover if you want to be Torah observant. Do you know where that is? It's not in Poughkeepsie. Nope, it's not. It's in Jerusalem in Israel. Yeah, that's right. So if you, if you claim that you're being Torah observant and you want to celebrate the Jewish roots of Christianity and and have this divine appointment with God to celebrate the Passover, well, keep in mind, uh, there's certain things that have to go along with it, including sacrificial animals. Um, It has to be celebrated in Jerusalem. Think about when you read your Bible, where did Jesus go every year uh, that's recorded in his ministry? Where did he go every year before the Passover? Answer, Jerusalem. Yeah. So God's word is very clear on this thing. If you're going to really observe it correctly and that and if you're not observing it correctly, you're not observing it at all. Uh there's sacrificial animals that have to be sacrificed. Oh, at the temple. Oh, it's not there, is it? Um and it, you have to celebrate it in Jerusalem. You can't just celebrate it anywhere. You have to celebrate it there. And so when somebody like Larry Huck comes along and says, "Oh, he's studied the 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 Hebraic roots of Christianity and discovered these things. He's kind of like, um, best way to put it, he's uh, avoiding certain biblical texts. And for instance, one of the texts that we go to regularly here um, is that uh, we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, start at verse 7. Here's what it says Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? If the if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will that which is permanent have glory. So the idea here is is that uh, scripture is very clear. The the Mosaic covenant, it's uh, it's kaput. It uh, it's no longer in effect. And uh, in fact, Hebrews eight thirteen says this very clearly. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and it's ready to vanish away. So so kind of here's the question for you: Are Christians required? to take their eight-day-old male infants and have them circumcised? Yes or no? Well, the answer is no. Scripture is very clear on this. In fact, if you remember 
uh, back to yesterday's episode of Fighting for the Faith on Roseboro's Ramblings Through Genesis, I started to take us in, into the book of Galatians to help give us the interpretive keys of understanding the life of Abraham. And, um, and well, Paul's argument is, yeah, we Christians are not required to uh, circumcise their eight-day-old male infants. What's the reason for this? We're not under the Mosaic Covenant. In fact, Acts chapter 15 makes this very clear as well. Acts chapter 15 says this, uh, starting at verse 1, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, you know, it's, it's not like circumcision isn't commanded in the Mosaic Covenant. It is. It's explicitly commanded in the Mosaic Covenant. Um, and circumcision is one of these uh, things that's supposed to be in effect as long as the Mosaic Covenant is in effect. And so now, you know, Christianity, you know, Christ has come and fulfilled the law, and the Messiah, the age of the Messiah is now upon us. And some of the folks that were Christians who were also Jews were saying, hey, listen, the Bible says you have to be circumcised, you Gentile men. And so here's what it says, verse 2, After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they all came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. Now, I let's... Let's change the topic here because the law of Moses commands quite a few things. We could have them say, although historically they didn't say this, but the same argument would apply. It's necessary for them to keep the Passover in order for them to keep the law of Moses. It still fits, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So here's what it says. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And they weren't even circumcised. That's his point. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by what? By faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test and placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them. Uh, and among the Gentiles, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take for them a people for his name, and with the words of the prophets agree, just as is written after this, I will return and rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those are the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what's been strangled from and from blood. For, for from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. 
Yeah. So did the uh, did the church council at Jerusalem of the apostles require the um, the Gentiles to be circumcised? No. Why? Because Scripture's clear. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3. The old covenant has been done away with. It's past. It has been fulfilled. Christ has fulfilled it. Now remember, Christ came and he fulfilled the Mosaic covenant. He lived under it and fulfilled it perfectly. Now Paul in Colossians, in the book of Colossians, takes you know preaches the gospel in Colossians chapter 2. Um, and notice what he says here in Colossians chapter 2. I'll start at verse uh, 11. It says, In him, in Christ also, you were circumcised. Oh, Christians are circumcised. That's right. Circumcision is type and shadow. With a circumcision made without hands, by putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Think kosher here or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Uh Uh-huh. The Jewish festivals here in Colossians 2.16 are mentioned. So a festival would be the Passover. Here's what Paul says, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So Paul makes it very clear here in Colossians 2. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Those are a shadow. Those were type and shadow. The reality is Christ. In fact, the whole Passover points us to Jesus. This is why Scripture says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. The Passover lambs all typologically pointed to our Passover lamb, the true lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and that's Jesus. So that's all of, the, by way of putting it this way, that's all foundation. And now let's get into uh, Larry Huck's Passover payday teaching, where he basically makes these outrageous claims that we, you know, we still need to observe the, uh, the, the Jewish Passover, and that apparently heaven, heavenly blessings are going to fall on us if we just understand, you know, the, the importance of these God-appointed times. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I was making this up. Here's Larry Huck to explain. You know, one of the most important teachings in all the Word of God is yeah. where the Lord says, my people... Those who love me, those who pray to me, those who are looking for a miracle, my people destroyed for one reason, Mm, lack lack of of knowledge. knowledge. Lack of knowledge. See, you just didn't know. You had no idea you're supposed to keep the Passover. And thank God for Larry and Tiz Huck to come and set us straight on this. The problem is, is the texts I read are still in play. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant. That knowledge can come because, or the lack of knowledge may come because nobody ever told us. Exactly. Or maybe even to somebody told us something 
that doesn't match the yeah. word of God. Let me show you something here because we want to talk to you about the appointed time. Yeah. Yeah. And then you, and the look on her face is, come on, baby, preach it. Bring home the bacon. Mama's going to fry it up in a pan. Of Passover and the miracles that God has ready. It's already been paid for. Yeah. Through the oh, yeah. There's miracles coming if you just observe the Passover. Blood of Jesus. But if we don't understand right. the season and the time and the miracles of Passover, we miss yeah, it. Yeah. Let me read just, just briefly from Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. The word of God says, Now on the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you, Jesus, mm. want us to prepare for you, Jesus, to eat Passover? Right. And here's the question I have for you. Is Jesus under the Mosaic Covenant, yes or no? And the answer is yes, he is. Was Jesus circumcised on the eighth day after he was born? Answer, yes, he was. Does that mean that Christians are required to be circumcised? No, it doesn't. So they're do, they're pulling a fast one here. They're not paying attention to the fact that the Mosaic Covenant has been abrogated. It has been fulfilled. Now, here's the other piece of it. When we look at the Mosaic Covenant, there are three different uh, portions of it, if you would. One is the moral law. And so, you know, it, it, these are important distinctions to make. So, you know, the Mosaic Covenant contains the moral law, which would be the Ten Commandments. It contains civil laws that pertain to the civil criminal code, if you would, of uh, the people who were living in the theocracy of Israel in the time of the Old Testament. And so there's moral, civil, and then there's ceremonial. Ceremonial laws have to do with the laws pertaining to sacrifices and the cultus, if you would, of of uh, the temple or the tabernacle originally, and then it became the temple. So the idea is this, is that um, it, it, it basically is this, is that when we look at the Mosaic Covenant, we understand that there is, that the civil and ceremonial laws have no part whatsoever in the New Covenant. The New Covenant does have commands, and you'll notice in like the book of Romans that all of the uh, moral commands of the of of the Mosaic Covenant get rolled into the New Covenant, with the exception of the requirement of the Passover, and the Passover itself has its fulfillment in Christ's rest in the tomb, uh-huh, on, uh huh, on 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 Saturday after he was crucified. Yeah, Christ, our Passover lamb, is slain, and Christ is our Passover rest, if you would. And now that typologically points us to salvation by grace through faith. I recommend reading Romans 8 or going back through the episodes that I did on my debate with Jim Staley regarding the Sabbath. But so you have to make these distinctions and you have to know about these distinctions in order to prevent yourself from being bamboozled by Larry and Tiz Huck here who are pointing us to Matthew chapter 26 where it says that Jesus observed the Passover. Of course he did. He's fulfilling the Mosaic Covenant. And he said, Jesus said, go into a certain city and say to him, the rabbi says, Jesus says, yeah. my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover. Jesus says, I will keep the Passover 
at your house with my disciples. Hmm. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. And I, I can't tell you how many times that we're talking with uh, pastors, we're talking with Christians, and we talk to them about this appointed time right. of Passover, and so many of them say, I never even saw that Passover was in the New Testament. Exactly. I always thought Passover was back in the time of Exodus, right. back when Israel left Egypt, yeah. and they've never, they've never experienced uh-uh. The miracles, yeah. the supernatural power that's waiting for every person yeah. only the, only during this time, this window. Yeah, where are you getting that from Scripture, that there's supernatural power that's available only during this time? In all of the Mosaic Covenant's descriptions and, um, and commandments pertaining to the Passover, Never is it said, oh, and listen, there, there's certain blessings that are like only available during the time of the Passover. Yeah. So what he's doing is he's rightly pointing out, well, yes. Did you know that uh, that uh, that Jesus actually observed the Passover? And the answer is, well, yes, he did. And that's exactly what happened. But did you also know that Jesus, after he was born here's what it says in Luke chapter 2 verse 21 and at the end of 8 days when he Jesus was circumcised he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb you see Jesus was circumcised so therefore you know you've got to be circumcised too and, and let me kind of give you the template if i were to use Larry Huck's template for twisting God's word, here's here's how I could do it. I can say, now you men out there, you men out there who call yourselves Christians, do you not know? Do you not know that Luke chapter two verse twenty one says that Jesus was circumcised? Let me read it to you. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. See, see, and so you got to remember that my people perish for lack of knowledge. And uh, if you're not circumcised, then you you are not understanding that God has special blessings and prosperity that he wants to give you. So I need you to send in your circumcision first fruits offering to fighting for the faith today. You see, that's how that works. That's what he's doing. He's rightly pointing out, yes, Jesus kept the Passover. Jesus is a Jew under the Mosaic Covenant. He was born under the law. That's what the book of Galatians says. And he fulfilled the law, and Christians are no longer required to keep the Mosaic Covenant, specifically the civil uh, laws and the ceremonial laws, including circumcision and things like that. So uh, what Larry Huck is doing here is pulling a fast one and tis, oh yeah, preach it, baby, preach it, baby. We're going to be able to afford those leather seats on our Learjet now. No, this appointed time that comes at Passover. Well, I think even for us, Larry, when we first started studying the Jewish roots, that was one of the first things that hit me was that Jesus did keep Passover. Exactly. He kept the feasts. And we had always been taught or just assumed. Uh, Of course he did whatever, that that all passed away. That was Old Testament. And so it was such a a launch point, I think. Yeah, it's, it's Mosaic Covenant. That's the right category. For us to move into the blessings of God, to understand. Oh, in order to move into the blessings of God, you've got you've to keep the Torah, you know. And that Jesus kept the feast. Yeah. He kept Passover. Yeah. And that the Lord's Supper 
he was having Passover dinner. So, you know, I think it's important for people to understand that. But then how does that affect us? How does that affect us in our lives? How do we continue on the path that Jesus did? And, you know, and I love what you... Oh, it sounds so pious. And how do we continue on the path that Jesus was on? Yeah. Again, Jesus is the only person to fulfill the Mosaic Covenant perfectly, and he fulfilled it perfectly for us. But you just said, because you said uh, a, a lot of us don't understand the Lord's Supper. Yeah. And, and I, I don't think I've ever said this while I'm teaching on Passover, but listen to me. Satan's purpose is come to is to come and steal and kill mm-hmm. and destroy. Yeah, that's a reference to John chapter 10 and that reference, the, 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 the one, you know, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's actually not referring to Satan. It's referring to false teachers. Go and look it up in context and you'll see what I'm saying. The blessings that Jesus, that Almighty God has for you. Right. And so one of the ways that Satan comes to steal and kill and destroy the blessing is by destroying the truth that will set you free. Oh, yeah. And you know, and so Satan is the one who destroyed the, the, the correct understanding of the Passover to keep you from having your heavenly blessings. But thank God for Larry Huck in the 20th, 21st century who discovered, rediscovered this truth so that you can experience the blessings of keeping the, the Passover. And so the devil used, unfortunately, yeah. the church in the early days. Yeah. And the church in the early days said... We want to pull everybody away from the Jew- Jewishness mm-hmm. of Jesus and Jewishness wow. of the Bible. And so mo- so there was a conspiracy. Weird. It was the Apostle Paul who was part of that conspiracy then. So was Peter was part of that because, you know, Acts chapter 15. And so was James. So Peter, James, and Paul, they conspired to get rid of the Jewishness of Christianity. Yeah. See what I'm saying? Most Christians know communion. Yeah. They know the Lord's Supper. But, you know, and I say this all the time, when Jesus was having communion, Mm -hmm. when he was having the Lord's Supper. And by the way, the Lord's Supper is the thing that comes out of the Passover. When was the first Lord's Supper kept? When When was it instituted? On the night Jesus was betrayed. And what was that night? Jesus, they had just sacrificed the Passover lambs, right? Yeah, they they were eating and celebrating the Passover. And so Jesus was celebrating the Passover. And when the cup of blessing comes, that's when Jesus says, take, eat, breaks the bread. This is my body broken for you. Take, drink. This is the blood of the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, in that moment, takes the Passover and totally transforms it into the Lord's Supper, which is what Christians celebrate, not the Passover. Because Christ is the Passover lamb that was alluded to, type and shadow, by the Passover itself. He didn't just get together with the guys and yeah. say, uh, you know what, meet me on Friday and let's have yeah. some pizza and some chips and some wings and I want to talk to you about yeah. some things. He met with them on Passover yes. because Passover, mm. the, and, and you know, let me say this before I get into that. 
we hear all the time the Jewish festivals. Right. And and I know we're in Israel, and I want to say this to all our Jewish brothers and sisters in Israel around the world. They are Jewish festivals, but I want all of our Christian brothers and sisters to hear that God never calls them Jewish festivals. Right. When God talks about to remember forever mm. the feast of mm. the Lord. That's Now, this... <laughs> This is another case. Yes, Leviticus 23, 1 talks about the Passover forever. It's in the same sense that the Sabbath is forever. And that, by the way, you have to understand how olam is used. Olam, when it's referring to eternity, that's the Hebrew word there, is referring to forever. When it's used in conjunction with things temporal, it's forever in so long as that particular state of affairs or institution exists. So, yeah, and I talk about this in my debate with Jim Staley on the Sabbath, and you can find that in the archives of Fighting for the Faith. So, again, Larry Huck here is not paying attention to anything. He's trying to figure out how to make a payday for himself on the Passover. So good. Forever, he said. Mm. Now, I don't know you know, what day exactly this is showing, but whenever you're watching this, it's part of forever. Yeah. These are not just Jewish feet. I'm going to go ahead and put in bed the YouTube videos of my uh, debate with Jim Staley because I cover this in my debate. I'll put it with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Yes. They are for all of God's people. We, through Jesus Christ, have been grafted in. These are the Lord's feasts. And if Jesus kept Passover, he never did anything just out of ritual, Mm -hmm. but out of the revelation of what happens during Passover. Yeah, as a Jew under the Mosaic Covenant, he had to keep Passover. If he didn't, then he sinned, and then he can't be our Savior. It's very deliberate. Absolutely. And so often that's just glossed over in Christianity. We we don't even realize it's in there, and it's right there in the Gospels. He kept Passover. He kept Passover, And, and there's a very... There's as if it's hidden in there, you know. The very powerful reason why, you know, um, we all, we all know the teachings in which Jesus. I think one of the best ones is in Mark chapter four, where Jesus taught about thirty, sixty, mm. and a hundredfold. And during this time, we're going to talk to you. The next several programs, we're going to talk to you about the miracle of God that happens during Passover. God is God 24-7. God is God every moment of every day. But there are times, and maybe we need to talk about this a little bit later when we come back from the break, there are times that God's miracles are greater. Yes. And there are... Where are you getting this from? There are times, certain times... He's just making it up, just literally making it up. I can't point to a biblical passage that says, oh, there's times when God's miracles are greater of the year, appointed times, Moedim, that God releases these miracles that he doesn't release to that power, to that dimension. Oh, yeah, the Moedim, yeah. yeah. So God's releasing all kinds of miracles during those times. In any other time of the year. And so the time of Passover is a window. We know yeah. we, we know about Malachi chapter 3, where God says, I'll open you up the windows, windows. of heaven. And we'll get into detail on that yeah. in some of the other programs. But the windows, listen to what we're saying to you. The windows of heaven are appointed times. Yeah. Moedim's appointed times 
That and that means you better send money to Larry Huck quick while the Moedim is still open. That window doesn't hover over us every moment of every day. Right. Right. But in Hebrew, they are windows that are passing by. Mm. Passover, in, we, we know Jesus talked about 30, 60, 100 fold. Yeah, notice all verses out of context here. Yeah. The 100 fold is unlimited. And, you know, I want to get into this, maybe not this program, but listen, every year you need to celebrate through Jesus Christ. The miracle, receive every mm, year that's the right. miracle power of Passover. Yes. Yeah, you got to receive the miracle power of Passover, yet no biblical text describes Passover in that way. And, and we're going to teach you more and more on how to do that. But this year of Passover, yeah. this year of... Come on, preach it, honey. We, we, I, I, I need another beamer. First fruit is different than any year that has ever been here or will ever come. Please tell us more. What is so different about this year? Because this Passover, this this one time is during the four blood moons. Gasp, the four blood moons, which means absolutely nothing. It's during Shemitah. Shemitah, and uh, that doesn't mean, again, the Mosaic Covenant is totally abrogated. The the United States and Christians are not rega- are required to keep the Shemitah. And this Passover, to those who have eyes to see, will lead you into mm. Jubilee. Uh, if you have eyes to see, this Passover will lead you into Jubilee. Yeah. Sounds so biblical, and it's not. This is a con. So, so there's so much to cover yeah. in this. So when Jesus talks about 30, 60, 100 fold, he didn't just grab that number out of the air and say, yeah. of course not. You know, I, uh, if you give, um, I don't know, you'll get uh, 25, 50. No, 30, yeah. 60, 100 fold is directly linked to Malachi, mm-hmm. the windows of heaven. Yeah. We come before the Lord and, and, and well, let me be- go back. Malachi, the people of God said, how do we get back under your blessing? Yeah. yeah, how how do we, Lord? We we need we need all of those miracles and prosperity. Exactly. And God says in Malachi, return unto me and yeah. I'll return unto you. Yeah. So the people said, Man, that's great. If we return to you, you, Jehovah Jireh. Je- Again, Malachi, New Covenant or Old Covenant? Answer, it's Old Covenant. Jehovah Sidkenu, Jehovah Mekadesh, all that you are. And it's- yeah, just throw out some Hebrew words now. This will really make it sound biblical. Yeah. so important that people understand. I'm going to have you share some testimonies yes. that it's not just, it is financial blessing. Absolutely. It, major financial yeah. blessing. Oh, yeah, you want financial blessing, but it's not just that. Oh, but you want financial blessing? You're sitting going, yeah, I want financial blessing. How do I get that? Well, answer, send money to Larry Hawk, and then God will bless you 30, 60, and 100 fold during the Passover Shemitah, four blood moons triumvirate, you know? This time of the year. Yes. But it's a blessing beyond finances. Mm. It's a blessing that will touch your body, your health, your yeah. children. Oh, yeah, you want a weight loss miracle? Just send money to Larry Huck. Yes. And your family. But they said, they said the Lord, how do, how do we get back into your blessing? Yeah. He said, return to me, I'll return to you. They said, how do we return? Right. He says, in tithes. We all know what that is. But he says, in offerings besides. Yes. What does that mean? Well, that's a Jewish thought. It's a Hebrew thought. That offering is three times mm-hmm. a year. 
you come before the Lord. Right. And you don't come empty-handed. Yeah. yeah, whatever you do, don't you don't show up empty-handed. So, you know, you, you want to celebrate the Passover so that you can, you know, experience the open window of the Moedim, you know, during the season, plus the, you know, the triumvirate with the uh, Shemitah and the four blood moons. You, you can't expect God to give you any anything if you show up empty-handed. Oh, God can't bless you then, you know. These are the three first fruits. They don't happen in January. Yeah. It's not the beginning of our our, our calendar, yeah. our solar calendar. Right. It is according to God's calendar, 30, 60, 100 fold, 31 right. time, 62 times, unlimited, yes. three times. And that begins with Passover. Passover is the first of the miracles that are released by God. Now, we're going to come back. We've got several things, and you know, yeah. So, pass, first of the miracles released by God, but no biblical text describes it in this way. We've got, we've got uh, the seder tray. We've got the cup. We have got something that. So, the product they're selling there is literally a portable um, Passover seder kit. I am so excited so cool. to bring to you. This is a Passover celebration, Love and, this. and we've got the book that'll show you how to do it. We have it set up. With the unleavened bread, yeah. with the kosher juice, with the cups, all from Israel on how to do Passover. You say, well, Pastor Larry, why should I do Passover? Because there are miracles. Yes. Yeah, because there's miracles. You, you want miracles, right? And, and he means financial, you know. That are only released. That's- only released, yeah. On, yeah, there's only, see... It's like Santa Claus, you know, it, it, he only comes during Christmas time. So God can only release certain blessings and miracles during the time of the Passover, you know. And which biblical text says that? Not any that he quoted. Right. This dimension during the time of Passover. Yeah. We're going to take a break. We're going to come right back and I'm going to talk to you about the miracles that are going to be released in your life this Passover. Oh, yeah. You want miracles? Just send in your seed, your your. First fruit seed offering to Larry Huck. As pastors Larry and Tiz are teaching today. Pastors Larry and Tiz. Tiz is a pastor. God's word forbids this. That should tell you something. They're not teaching sound doctrine. Hey, this Passover season of first fruits will never be like this again. Never, never. The combination of being in a Shemitah year, Shemitah, going into Jubilee, gasp, Jubilee too, and the occurrence of the four blood moons. Oh, it's. Oh man, blessings are about to just plop right out of heaven on top of your head. But you got to send your money into Larry Huck now. Will never happen again in our lifetime. Pastor Larry wants you to be informed about the signs, seasons, and cycles of God that are. I'm sure he does, so that you'll send him money. Happening right now. He and Tiz want to send you his new book, Four Blood Moons, for sowing a first fruits offering today. Of yeah, for sowing a first fruits offering. Any size. This is important information that we want to get into your hands now. For your first fruits gift of $75 or more, we will include this silver plated Kadush cup to use in your celebration of Passover and also for use each time you celebrate Shabbat. Oh, man, this is awful. Or take communion in your home. Uh, Man. 
With your first fruits offering of $175 or more, we'll include this elegant 15-inch Passover Seder plate. You and your family will want to use this distinctive silver plate as part of your Passover meal to display the special foods eaten during this Feast of the Lord. The Silver Cup and Pastor's Four Blood Moon Book are also included. As you are able to sow an offering today of $400 or more, Pastors Larry and Tiz want to say thank you by sending you this limited edition Passover set. This unique $400 boxed set comes with two smaller Kadush cups, matzah bread, and kosher grape juice direct from Israel. The Christ in the Passover booklet is also included and leads you step-by-step step into the preparation and understanding of the Passover celebration. The book, Larger Kadush Cup, and the Passover Seder Plate are all included as you send in your first fruits gift today. So I think you get the idea of what's going on here. This is what we call a money fleecing. This is a con, teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Is this what Christians are supposed to be doing? Why have Christians not celebrated the Passover for the last two millennia? It's real simple because the New Testament makes it clear we're no longer under the Mosaic Covenant and that the festivals were a shadow, a type of the thing to come, but the fulfillment itself is Christ. Wow. Okay, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. A Brian Houston sermon. It's been a while since we've done one of those on titled No Other Name. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Yeah, we're well into hour number two today. Went a little long on the uh, Larry and Tiz Hug thing. Thought it was needed. Oh, and by the way, we're going to be introducing our brand new Hillsong update music here in a second. 
it's, it's kind of like a bonus track here at Fighting for the Faith. But let's uh, cue up our sermon review music, and then I'll intro the uh, future Hillsong update music that we'll be using here. Hey, ho! The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Hillsong, Sydney, Australia. Brian Houston presiding. The name of the sermon we'll be listening to is entitled No Other Name. Now pay attention to how he does or handles scripture. It's very similar to uh, Prophetess Schober and her way of doing things. You know, you lay the, t- the text down and then shimmy to the right or shimmy to the left. And it, funny enough, Houston does something in this sermon I've never really heard before, but you'll hear it. He, he uses kind of thesis antithesis, kind of a Hegelian dialectic thing going on. But um, you'll kind of get that as we go. But let me go ahead and back off on the music because I'm going to use this occasion, since it's been a while since we've done a Brian Houston update, to uh, introduce you to our new Hillsong update music. Now, I didn't write this. We found this out on the Internet, and we had to clean it up a little bit. Uh, but uh, it was the song itself was actually made in honor of Hillsong. So in the future, when we do Hillsong updates during our number one, here's the music we'll be using. Praise the Lord for all the cash I've got. Praising for my Rolls Royce and my yacht. Serving God ain't hard with a credit card. Jesus died so I could make a lot. Praise the Lord, He's made us millionaires. Wave your donations in the air. We've replaced our hymns with ATMs, and soon we'll charge a fee on every prayer. Jesus Christ was a poor man, don't you know? He should have used our accountants for his cash flow. Stop the sermon on the mount, he should have had a bank account. Two thousand years with interest, he'd be rolling in the dough. Praise the Lord, this song's out on CD, just forty ninety five plus GST. Hallelujah, Lenny and Moolah, solid gold baubles on my Christmas tree. I've got all of heaven's riches, thanks to all you stupid people. Praise the Lord for modern Christianity. said religion should be free yeah there we go praise the lord <laughs> that's our uh, new hillsong update music that we will be using in future installments of our uh, hillsong updates during hour number one so without any further ado here is brian houston and the sermon we'll be reviewing now is entitled no other name here we go really great to be together with everyone I love that song, there is no other name. One name holds weight above them all. His fame outlasts the earth he formed. His praise resounds beyond the stars and echoes in our hearts. The greatest one of all. Seated on high, the undefeated one. I love these words. Full of victory, full of power. 
seated on high, the undefeated one. Mountains bow down as we lift him up. There is no other name. There is no other name. Jesus Christ our God. Everybody say there is. Now, my apologies. This is where the audio skipped a little bit. Again, problems with the recording. We continue. And this beggar was a lame man. And for 40 years of his life, 40 years, think about that, 14,000 days, they had taken him and laid him at the gate. Beautiful. It was the and gate. And now he's in the book of Acts. You know, again, it, sorry, it skipped. The temple. They took him every day of his life to the gate, but he had never been able to get through the gate to where the praise, the worship, the prayer, where effectively the presence of God was. They would just take him to this gate, a gate called Beautiful. It was called Beautiful because it's a huge, ornate, bronze gate. This gate, Beautiful, 75 feet tall, huge. As a matter of fact, it took 20 men to open and shut the gate. Huge gate. This gate was so ornate, so beautiful, that Josephus described it as being more precious than silver and gold. But I guess to this man who was taken to the gate, but he could never get through the gate, it looked a little more like an iron curtain than a beautiful gate. I think sometimes when it comes to God's purposes in our life, it seems like the barrier in front of us is more like an iron curtain. Now notice what he just did there. Yeah, this is a form of Jesus. He took you know, an element that appears in this story from the book of Acts, the, this ornate gate, the gate beautiful, and now he's somehow allegorized it to basically represent uh, you know, things in your life that are blocking you from getting to your destiny, your purpose, or holding you back in life. And uh, see, here's the thing, is, is that this gate wasn't holding this, this beggar back. Um, this lame beggar, no, you know, wasn't the gate. The thing that was holding him back, well, was the fact that he was lame. Yeah, so uh, we got a problem here, and this is how the technique works. You know, you mention the text. This is the heresy two-step. You, you, you read the text. It's right there. You kind of put it on the ground in front of you, and then you shimmy to the right or you shimmy to the left. You back up away from it, and you say, hey, I read the text, but then what you talk about has nothing to do with what the text is actually saying. Beautiful gate. And so Peter and John, they're on their way to pray, Acts chapter 3. And as they're on their way to pray, as I guess they did every day, they passed this beggar, this lame man, lying at the gate. And he looked intently at them. But Peter, this is what he said in Acts chapter 3, verse 6. Peter said, silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have, I'll give you. In the name. Everybody say, in the name. In the name. In the name. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up immediately. And his feet and ankle bones received strength. It was in the name of Jesus but it was Peter who actually lifted him up. It's kind of how I see it working with the church. Uh, what? 
So notice he mentions, does this text mention anything about how things work in the church today? Nope, it doesn't. In fact, that's, remember, I've been saying for a while that, you know, what the biblical text says is so much better than what these Bible twisters are trying to make it say. Let's take a look at the story. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. I read this recently on the air, but let's take a look. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his eyes and his attention on them, expecting to receive from something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, uttered, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, and, and his name by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in accordance, in ignorance, sorry, you acted in ignorance, as did uh, also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back so that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come, from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers, and you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel to those who came after him, they also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So notice what Peter does here. He preaches repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And also notice that he accuses all of them of turning Jesus over to Pilate, even though this is more than a month, you know, maybe two, two months since uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. And so, you know, in a sense, we're all guilty of the blood of Christ, and that's how uh, Peter is preaching here. But this is all about 
no other name that we must be saved. Christ, it's pro- Peter is proclaiming Christ. The miracle is about Jesus. And the call is to repent and to be forgiven that your sins may be blotted out. Great passage when you read it in context and understand what's going on here. But Brian Houston is really not a keen guy on preaching, you know, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. No, he's way more interested in reading himself into these texts, and he's already begun to do that. Carry his name, and we use that name to lift people up toward the promise and the purpose of God. And so, this is what Peter said. He said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He took him by the right hand, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. So he leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping and praising God. You ever wonder about the power of this name? Peter says, look, I can't give you silver and gold. He said, but I do have, I'm going to give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And suddenly this man, he starts to walk and leap and praise God. I'm sure if it was in some of our church services, he would walk and leap and praise God. Walk and leap and praise God. Do you think that's what it was like? I'm so grateful they gave me a runway here today, praise God. Because I don't think he just walked and leaped and praised God. Thank you, Lord. Walked and... No, 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 no. I believe that he walked. Oh, he leaped. And he praised God. You see, under the name of Jesus. Yeah, you're kind of focusing in on the minor points. The important part is what Peter preached and who he preached. He preached Christ crucified for our sins. Powerful had just happened. Walking, leaping, praising God. So powerful. And now here's a man who could do what he had never done. He could never walk. He could never leap. He could never praise God. He could do what he had never done. And he could go where he had never gone. You see, he'd been to the gate, but he'd never been through the gate. And all of a sudden now with Peter and John, he goes through the gate toward the temple, towards the place of prayer and praise and worship where the presence of God was. When you live your life under the name of Jesus, I believe it means that you can go where you've never gone and you can do. What? This has nothing to do with going where you've never gone and doing what you could never do. What are you talking about? The message is about repenting of your wickedness and being forgiven by Christ. Never done. I think that at the church here in Australia and around the globe, we have to keep believing through the name of Jesus Christ to be able to go where we've never gone and do what we've never done. What is it you've never been able to do? What is it that it seems like more than a beautiful gate? There's an iron curtain towards what you believe. Is- oh, man, this is just miserable. This text has nothing to do with iron curtains or g- gates in your life. Promise of God in your life. What is it where you need to believe in the name of Jesus Christ that you will be able to go where you've never gone and do what you've never done? Pastor of a church, I'm believing for us through the name of Jesus Christ to keep on doing things that we've never done. We're pioneering again to go where we've never gone. Amen. Because life's too short 
to live inside of our bubble when we've been given such a powerful name. We carry that name. Well, of course, <laughs> when people see what's happening here, they're a little amazed. And of course, there were some who were threatened. And so the Sanhedrins, those were the protectors of the Jewish law. They were protectors of the correct, correct use of the Torah. And so the Sanhedrin, they wanted to know what was going on. In chapter 4, verse 7, they said, And when they had set them in the midst of them, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this thing? What is this name? Whose is this name? They're asking. In verse 10, Peter said, Let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. And then in verse 12, listen to it. Nor is there any salvation in any other, for there is no other name. Did you hear it again? Peter is saying, there is no other name by which men can be saved. Suddenly, through this name, there's a, a beggar who's living a life bigger than he ever. Right, by which we must be saved. So he goes on. Let's take a look. He, he goes into Acts chapter 4. Notice he has no time whatsoever to actually read the story from the biblical text, which is a bad sign. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. So as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word, believed, and the number of, men, of the men came to about 5,000. So on the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the a high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power... Or by what name did you do this? As if they'd committed a crime, right? You know, healing this uh, this poor guy. So then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, well, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, uh, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Uh -huh. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Yeah, the story goes on if you want to continue to read it, but uh, what do you think this passage is all about? It's about the miracles being done in Jesus' name that support and buttress and bear witness to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah the promised Messiah of Israel, and, and the call is consistent with what Jesus said to the disciples in Luke chapter 24, that repentance and the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And so now, 
repentance and the forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed. It's proclaimed to the people at the temple. It's even proclaimed to the Pharisees and to the high priests, right? There is no other name under which men must be saved. It's all about repenting, being forgiven by the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. These are amazing texts, are they not? But Brian Houston is not interested in what these texts are about. He wants to find a way to make it about, well, him and Hillsong and and you, but not really about Jesus. Imagine he could ever live. Suddenly he could go where he could never go, and he could do what he had never done. I believe before this conference is out through the name of Jesus Christ, people are going to get a revelation of where God can take you, what God can do in you, that he can do what he's never done or what you've never done and take you where you've never gone. Because that- Yeah, this text has nothing to do with you being taken where you've never gone. I don't know what, where Brian is getting this nonsense from power that's in the name of Jesus. That's the power that we believe in today. And you know, it's an amazing thing because Peter is saying there is only one way. There's not multiple choices here. There is only one way. There is only one gate. His name is Jesus. There is no other name. Sounds kind of exclusive. Makes it sound like a very exclusive message. Sounds like it's a kind of narrow way to get to God if there's only one way. In Matthew chapter 7, in verse 13, verse 14, it's talking about the way to life and the way to destruction. And I want you to think about these verses. In verse 13, it says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many go by that. And then it goes on and says in verse 14, because narrow is the gate, there is no other name. And difficult is the way, which leads to life. And there are few who go by it. Narrow is the gate, difficult is the way. Here's the sad thing. A lot of people, they don't just see it as a narrow gate. In other words, there's only one way to God, a narrow gate. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. Just one gate. But what makes me so sad is so often people forget that it's not the path that's narrow. It's not the way that's narrow. The Bible doesn't say it's a narrow way through a narrow gate. It does say it's a difficult path. And to be honest, sometimes serving Jesus, it's a difficult path. Uh, Jesus says, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to life. What is So he's t- basically trying to engage in word games. I've heard this described as the blender bender of, uh, of basically word games. So, you know, he kind of says what the text says and then says what it doesn't say. And by kind of mixing things up here, he's making it say something it isn't saying. Spend plenty of time telling you some of the challenges, some of the difficulties, some of the cry, some of the pain. It's a difficult path through a narrow gate. But when you think about this man who through the name of Jesus was now walking and leaping and able to enter in through the gate to the presence of God, it didn't narrow his life down. Suddenly he was able to live a bigger life. I believe that he... What? 
So so narrow is so does the narrow is the you know, narrow broad is the road narrow is the way. Does this have anything to do with this man being healed? No, this that, him quoting this text doesn't make any sense at all. Though sometimes the path is difficult, other translations call it straight. And I have to say, there's a lot of curves sometimes on that straight path. That's why the Bible says in the Proverbs, the way of life winds upwards for the wise. But uh, it may be difficult, but I believe for you, for you to be able to live a big life on a sometimes difficult path. Big life on a difficult path. What? This has nothing to do with Acts 3 or 4. Through a narrow gate to a glorious future. Listen, do it one more time. A big life. I believe God wants you to live a big life. Doing what you've never done. <laughs> God wants you to live a big life and go where you've never gone and do what you've never done before. This is complete gobbledygook. This is not exegesis. This is just nonsense. In fact, it, this doesn't sound like the gospel being delivered in any of these passages. This sounds like something he hijacked from Star Trek. Listen in. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Yeah, there we go. Boldly go where no one has gone before. Yeah, that's what this... Hillsong sermon is man. We continue going where you've never gone. <laughs> yeah. Life on a sometimes difficult path to Jesus. He he had a difficult path. He was born in humility, and while he was rejected many times, and spent time in jail, and spent a lifetime full of persecution, and being attacked by Pharisees and by others, and ultimately, of course, faces a lonely, painful death. It was a very difficult path. He didn't live a narrow life. He lived a big life. He yeah, Jesus didn't have a narrow life. His was big. <laughs> what on earth is this? 5,000, feeding 5,000, healing people, bringing people to life. Don't ever think that serving God is a narrow path. People make it so narrow, so negative, so legalistic, and they make it into a narrow path. And I think that's one of the devil's great strategies here at Hillsong Church. Let's decide we're going to live a big life that God, God's got for you. He's a big life. What he wants to do for you is cause you to live a big life on what sometimes can be a difficult, prickly path through a very narrow gate, but it's to a glorious future in Jesus' name. You see, I love it when David says in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 37, David, he starts to talk about that path. He starts to talk about the way forward for him. And he talks about the Lord enlarging his path. He says to the Lord, you have enlarged my path that I may not slip. I think it's an awesome scripture. You've enlarged my path under me. 
And these scriptures had nothing to do with Acts 3 or 4. And uh, this, this sounds like his version of the prayer of Jabez. Path that's narrow. I believe God wants to challenge you to have bigger dreams, have a wider belief. Yeah, cause, you know, because he raised the, you know, the crippled guy. So that means God wants you to have bigger dreams. What on earth? Bigger church. Hey, man, be a bigger spirited person. Have bigger thinking because it's a big and a wide path. Listen to Colossians. Yeah, wide is the road that leads to destruction. I don't know why he keeps talking like that. Chapter 1, verse 19 in the message. So spacious is he, so roomy that everything in God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Yeah, God's really roomy. Yeah, because that has nothing to do with Acts 3 or 4 either. That's the way I believe about God and his will and his purpose for your life. It may be just an exclusive gate, a narrow gate, but how spacious is he? How roomy is he? Yeah, I mean, he's at least, you know, like, you know, a 15,000 square foot house. I mean, ask Stephen Furtick what that's like, you know. Don't ever allow religion, people's poor mentality, legalism, negative, defeated Christians. Have you believing somehow you've got to live this narrow path? It's a big life through a narrow gate to a glorious future. I think you're getting the idea there. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, verse 12. Now we're just hopscotching a bunch of verses out of context. Dear, dear Corinthians, I can't tell you how much I long for you to enter into this wide open, spacious life. Uh, <laughs> what? Paul says, we don't tempt you in. The smallness you feel comes from within you. I have no idea where he's getting. Oh, it's probably the message, which is not a translation. Your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a small way. Yeah, Paul was all about living large, not small. Yeah, yeah, right. Through the name of Jesus Christ, the name to which Paul said there is no, Peter said there is no other name. You can live a life where you can go where you've never gone. And you can do what you've never done. I couldn't even imagine starting out. People ask all the time when you and Bobby started Hillsong. Yeah, Ch now we're preaching about ourselves. Yeah, Bobby and yeah, and, and Brian talking about Brian, Bobby and Brian, not Jesus. Did he call them to repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins the way Peter did in Acts 3? No, not at all. Could you have imagined? And, and the answer is obviously no. We had a passion and a heart to, to do something significant in the northwest part of Sydney. I could never have imagined that through the name of Jesus, we can go to where we could never ever have imagined we could go and we can do what we just simply couldn't comprehend we could do. And God doesn't love me any more than he loves you. So be a big-spirited, big-thinking believer who believes for God to do in your life the exceeding, the abundant, the above anything that you ever, ever could ask. And now it's turning into a motivational speech, and he's not calling them to repent in faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Or think in Jesus' name. He could do what he had never done. He could go where he could never go on. And Peter knew that it wasn't according to what he didn't have and in his own strength, that wasn't according to what he did have. Here we go again with the blender bender. Yeah, he's, he's, he's doing this weird thing with Scripture to make it say something it's not saying. See, Peter, under the name of Jesus, 
He said, silver and gold have I none. Right. I can't help you. Right. Because of what I don't have. That's what he said. But he also recognized in his strength that it wasn't about what he did have. What? In verse 12, after, in verse 6, Peter had prayed for the man and started to walk and to leap and to praise God. And the crowd are amazed and that now this lame man goes through the gate, through into access he's never had before. And people are amazed and they're crowding around Peter and John and the man who had just been healed. And there inside the temple in a place called Solomon's Porch, people are asking questions and wondering what's going on. And I love the way that Peter responds. In verse 9, all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging arms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. So now the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John and all the people ran at them in the porch, which is called Solomon's Grave. And they were greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this or why look so intently at us? As though our power or godliness has done this thing. Listen to what Peter's saying. People suddenly are staring at them. And Peter's saying, hey, don't stare at us. Why, why are you looking at us? Don't, don't, don't stare at us. It's not as though it's our power or our godliness that's done this thing. It's an amazing thing when God works. We want to put a name on it. We want to attribute it to somebody. <laughs> what? You see, no, he, he just, he put the text down and now he's shimmied to the right and to, and to the left, but he ain't actually dealing with the text as it stands. Maybe sometimes we're quick to take all of the, all of the credit for ourselves. Oh, he's God's blessing my church and praise the Lord and hallelujah. And I... Yeah, what you're talking about has nothing to do with this text. Listen, thank God and come along to my seminar. We can make it about ourselves. And, that's just too- and it's weird that you're saying that because that's exactly what you're doing with this text. You're making it about yourself. That's what people tried to do with Peter. They're saying to Peter, you know, how did you do this thing? He said, well, why, don't look at us. He said, it's not as though it's our power, not as though it's our godliness. It's an incredible thing because if you were to go today still to the Vatican and the Basilica, which is massive, the nave is something like 211 meters long. So in other words, more than two football fields long is this massive, massive basilica in Rome. And uh, the dome, 132 meters tall, one of the tallest domes in the world, right in center place is a bronze statue of Peter. And do you know for hundreds of years, pilgrims have come by many times lined up for hours to get their turn to come past this bronze statue of Peter. And they've either rubbed his big toe or kissed his big toe so much that all the bronze has been worn off his big toe. Still to this day, we want to make it about people. We want to make it about a man. In Acts chapter and 10. Again, the irony is, is that you've been preaching about yourself and you're not rightly handling this text because the punchline is, repent of your wickedness and be forgiven. A few chapters later, that's where an Italian stallion, an Italian centurion, an Italian centurion called Cornelius, he was seeking the things of Jesus. And he basically has a dream that leads him to a Jewish fisherman. Peter, 
And so Peter is going to introduce the gospel and then the power of the Holy Spirit to the Gentile world. It's, it's a place where it had never before gone. And so when finally Peter and Cornelius meet at the door, Peter knocks on Cornelius' door. And this Italian stallion, this man of authority, he gets down on his face. So the, uh, the centurion's name was Rocky Balboa. Got it. And he begins to worship, it seems, Peter. And if I were to read Acts 10.26, Peter just lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I myself am also a man. You know, when God works in our churches, when God works in our lives... And there we go again. This does not have anything to do with your church and whatever. It's amazing how we can try to put it down to a person, try to put it down to a man. Peter knew. He said, don't stare at us. This is not our power. He said to Cornelius, stand up. I'm just a man like you. You see, I think of our church. And really, ultimately, it's never been about a church called Hillsong. It's always been about... And it's weird because he's been preaching about Hillsong tonight. Um, that's pretty weird. Savior called Jesus. And in our lives, in our ministries, if we want to make it about ourselves, we'll always limit what God actually wants to do. Because it's through Jesus Christ that you can go where you've never gone and you can do what you've never done. And you... yeah, there we go again. Go where you've never gone. Yeah, the Star Trek theme again. Um, I don't know where he's getting that because none of that's in this text. Try to do things in your own strength when the difficult path comes, when the tough time comes, and just see how far you get. When my son Ben, just a tiny little baby boy, our church just moved into a brand new warehouse. We hadn't even finished furnishing it yet. and There was a little mezzanine floor, concrete floor still, mezzanine floor where we were building offices and we were just moving in there, and I guess OH&S, Occupational Health and Safety, weren't quite 30 years ago like they are today because I was in my office and I heard this horrible thud. This almost shook the concrete. You could feel this thud. You could almost feel the floor. And so we all rushed out of our rooms and offices, and the worst thing had happened. Ben had fallen from the mezzanine floor onto concrete one full floor below, he had fallen through the, where the banister, the rail should have been, and landed on his head one whole level below. Three-year-old boy. I'll never forget it. Any parent who's been in situations like that, you understand. I couldn't run down there fast enough, and I picked up my boy. And when I picked up my boy, he wasn't breathing. He couldn't breathe, and his face was going deep shades of blue and purple. And it seems we couldn't get him to breathe, and I didn't know what to do. I only knew instantly to do one thing, to scream, Jesus! And at that moment, I'm not sure whether I just frightened him, or, <laughs> but I think it was the name of Jesus. He began to breathe. He began to breathe. You see, That's why it's good for us to always remember there is no other name. There is only one name by which men are saved. There's only one name that caused demons to flee. Only one name that can... Yeah, that's right. And um, Peter in Acts 3 and 4 talks very specifically about what this Jesus, the one that there is no other name, what he's calling them to do, repent and to be forgiven.
us to live in the power and the promise of God. It's that name that can enable you to go where you've never gone and to do what you've never done. Never underestimate the power of the name of Jesus. And we're called Christians. We carry his name. And you know, in the Old Testament... Yeah, I agree. So why don't you preach him correctly then? If you were to look with me, and I hope you will, at Numbers, Numbers chapter 6... This is like Bible hopscotch. We are all over the place. He's not exegeting any particular text now, is he? You can see there where God literally put his name on his people. It's in Numbers chapter 6. Many of you would recognize these verses because for generations, for centuries, churches have used it as part of a benediction. It says the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord causes face to shine upon you. And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And if you were to study that yourself, peace, shalom, the active word, the verb literally is prosperity. So it's a <laughs> So God's, you know, the benediction's all about you becoming wealthy. I had no idea. Enough. Peace to you or prosperity to you, good health to you. It's that kind of blessing. So we know the blessing. But listen to verse 27, Numbers chapter 6. This is what it says. God's telling Moses to tell Aaron the priest. He says this. So they, the priests, shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. They will put my name. What does that mean? To put God's name on the children of Israel, on God's Old Testament people. And then God says, I will bless them. It starts off in verse 22. Let me just read the verses to you. In verse 22, it's the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons. Aaron is the high priest. And his sons saying, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord causes his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you, his smile, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Then tell them to put my name on the children of Israel. It's powerful, you know. It's a beautiful, beautiful blessing. It's a beautiful, beautiful promise. God says he would put his name on people. It's significant for a few reasons, but it's blessing from start to finish. The Lord bless and keep you. I love that. God wants to bless you. He doesn't want you to live in defeat. He doesn't want you to live a narrow road, a small road. Yeah, we, he, God wants you on the broad road. <laughs> the, you know, the one that leads to destruction. He wants, like David, to broaden your path and last your path. You live that wide, open, roomy, spacious life that comes through. Yeah, roomy and spacious. That means huge tracts of land, you know. Narrow gate in Jesus' name. Now listen, <laughs> bless and keep you. What does it mean for God to keep you? It means he looks at you as a keeper. You're a keeper. Because, you know, it's all about the abundance of you, you know. He wants to protect you. He wants to provide for you. He wants to keep you. The Lord be gracious to you. God's not angry with you. He's not angry. He's full of grace. Because of Christ, you want to talk about how Christ, his death on the cross, has atoned for our sins and propitiated the wrath of God? 
You might want to talk about that if you're going to talk about God not being mad at us. Under that name, he's full of grace. The Lord be gracious to you. You know, that's this beautiful, beautiful declaration. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you. You ought to hear it in the, in the opposite world translation. In the, the what? The opposite world translation. Listen to the same verse. This is the one that sometimes the mean Christians on the internet use. The ones who like... You know, like bloggers. Yeah, those booger heads. Yeah. Mess up your Instagram timeline or your Twitter feed. The ones who want to bring all their negativity and defeat into your life. The ones who somehow think that the, <laughs> the difficult path through a narrow gate means a narrow gate. No, here's the, the opposite world translation. The Lord curse you and desert you. The Lord cause his face to glare at you and be mean to you. The Lord look down his nose at you and give you condemnation and guilt. Okay, um, yeah. <laughs> so he's going thesis antithesis here. This is almost like the Hegelian dialectic thrown into a uh, into a sermon. It's it's rather um, perturbing to listen to. How many are grateful? That's not the Lord that we serve. Not a God who looks down his nose at you. Not a God who glares at you. Not a God who wants to discard you or fill you with condemnation and guilt. So you're going to exegete the opposite of what the opposite world translation says rather than an actual real translation. Yeah, that's, that's quite a trick. I've never seen that done before. No, he's a God who wants to bless and keep and cause his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you, lift up his smile, his countenance towards you, and fill your life with peace, with blessing. That's the heart of God. And you know, this blessing, this blessing is Moses, God told him that this is to be a declaration. Not just a prayer, a declaration. It's to be pronounced. It's to be proclaimed. The high priest is told to declare this over the people, to proclaim it. I love it. And the name, where every time it says, the Lord bless you, the Lord causes faith to shine upon you, the Lord lift up his going. The, the name is the most holy, divine name of God that there is. It's the name Yahweh, except with no vows. So it's Y-H-W-H. Let's try that one together. Y-H-W-H. How do you say it? That's why we put the vows in there. Yahweh. God's holiest, God's most divine name. You could not put a more powerful name on a promise than that name. It was a name so powerful that only the high priest could declare it. The Jews weren't even allowed to write it down because it was a proclamation. And so this name under which the blessing comes, it's the greatest, ultimate, most divine name of God. Such a powerful name. And this name, the whole purpose of it was to reveal the name. The reason for this whole blessing was to reveal the name of God, Yahweh. And for thousands of years, when Jews gather, still they use this blessing, this proclamation. 
And if there's no priest there, the highest ranking person in the family or in the gathering, they will bring this proclamation. The Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, cause his face to shine upon you. And as they do that, it's called by the Jews various things. Sometimes they call it the blessing of the high priest because only the high priest could bring this blessing. Other times they called it the triple blessing because three times it's in the name of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and bring you peace. So they called it the triple blessing. But the other thing they called it, which I think is awesome, they called it the blessing of the lifted palms. And the reason they called it the blessing of the lifted palms is because the priest literally would lift his palms and put that blessing on the people. He would lift his palms and put it on the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. So powerful. And then it goes on, don't forget, where it says, put my name on the people. So can you imagine God, the high priest lifting palms, putting God's name on people? Well, it's significant because up to that moment, the only person... Hugh Sappy Music. This is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending on the audience in order to do business with the people there. Who could carry that name was the high priest himself. As a matter of fact, if you'll bear with me just for a minute, the high priest, he would literally wear the name on his ephod, his priestly garments. Those days, the priest, he had to wear this ephod, priestly garments and a turban. I kind of like being a pastor today with an open neck shirt and a pair of jeans. It's kind of cool. But listen, this is what the instruction God gave the high priest in Exodus. It's Exodus chapter 28. He says, find two big onyx stones. So he finds two onyx stones and he's told to engrave the names of six of the tribes of Israel on one stone, one rock, and the other six names of the tribes of Israel on the other rock. And so that means that those 12 tribes representing all the names of Israel were to be attached onto his shoulders. So he'd be attached to his ephod. He'd be carrying those names, the names of all the people of Israel. And on top of that, Exodus 28, the high priest is told to wear on a gold plate on his turban the name Yahweh, the name of God. And literally, God is holiness. So the only person who could carry the name of God was the priest. And he literally carried the names of the people before God. And he carried the name of God on behalf of the people. And now suddenly in this scripture, Numbers chapter 6, it all changes because this is where God says to the priest, the only one who can carry God's name, suddenly now he's being told to put that name on the people, the blessing of the lifted palms. You will put my name on the people and I will. Yeah, by the way, uh, when we're baptized, what are we, how does baptismal, how's the baptismal words work? I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Where does God put his name on us? 
now as Christians in the New Covenant, in our baptism. Bless them. And that's why today we carry his name. That's why every time in all four Gospels it tells the story of our commission differently. But one thing all four mention is that it's in the name of the Lord. In my name you will cast out demons. In my name you will heal the sick and they shall recover. Because we carry that name. And as carriers of that name, we're not called to live small, narrow lives. We're not called to live lives that somehow take the attention. There we go again. No, we're not called to live small, narrow lives. And he did not come to that conclusion using any kind of thing that resembled sound biblical exegesis. It was Star Wars, uh, no, sorry, Star Trek Jesus. ...and start thinking it's about ourselves. But we need to understand that through the name of God, there are... Maybe what seems like iron curtains that God can knock down. He wants to do more in you than you ever could imagine. He wants to take you further than you could ever go. He wants to do in you what you could never do in Jesus' name. You see, here is a name that's as inclusive as it is exclusive. There is only one way, exclusive. But the Bible says, whosoever will to the Lord may come. Inclusive. It's as exclusive as it is inclusive. It's as wide as it is narrow. Yeah, let's talk about that narrow sense. Then call them to repentant faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Tell them to repent of their wickedness and trust in this Jesus who was crucified for their sins. Let's let's talk about the narrow part now. It's as powerful as it is personal. It's the name that takes you to where you couldn't go and causes you to do what you couldn't do. It's the name that's above every other name. It's the name of Jesus. There is no other name than the name of Jesus. And I'm going to believe before the service is over to be able to lift my palms. And I'm going to believe symbolically to put God's name on people. And... Uh. <laughs> So now he's got some sacramental anointing where he's going to do the blessing of the palms on people to put God's name on them. (sighs) Yeah, not paying attention to uh, the biblical text, Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, in the name, singular. That's where God puts his name on us. God's name on him, believing that you will be able to do what you've never done and go where you've never gone. Anyone believe in this kind of Christianity? No, I don't, because you didn't get to this kind of Christianity using sound biblical exegesis and clear texts. You twisted God's word horribly. Name that's above every other name in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was at that moment, right there, number six where suddenly the name went from just a high priest to people like you and I. And the priest said, I'll put my name on you and I will bless you. Everything about this promise is blessing. It starts, may the Lord bless you. And it ends, and I will bless you. And it's right in line with the Abrahamic covenant where in Genesis 12, the Lord said, I will bless through the gate. To where the praise, the worship, the prayer, where effectively the presence of God was. They would just take him to this gate, a gate called so much as ours through the name of Jesus. Yeah, sorry about that. The audio skipped again. But the reality is we're blessed to be a blessing. And if we carry that name Christian, what should that look like in our lives? 
I feel like the church in our country here and in the countries represented, we need to understand that we're called not just to be consumers of the name. You see, there's nothing wrong with that. Our healing is in the name of Jesus. Our victory is in the name of Jesus. Our breakthrough is in the name of Jesus. But let's not only live as consumers. We're consumers of the name. We're carriers of the name. He's put the name on us, but we're also contributors of the name. In other words, we carry what name to the world around and about us. When Martin Luther added to the Lutheran mass, this particular declaration, Numbers chapter 6, the same one that we often complete our services with as a, as a benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you, give you peace, give you blessing, prosperity. You know, we use it as a benediction. Well, when Martin Luther added it, that's exactly what he was thinking to go out from that place, carrying the name of the Lord, but also to go out into the highways and the byways, into your workplace and your village, into your family and your community, carrying that name. So that's our responsibility. We're not just called to be consumers of this name. We are carriers of the name. We're contributors of the name. I want to encourage you more than ever before to allow that name, the name of Jesus on your life, the name that's having such a great impact on your own life, enabling you to go where you've never gone and do what you've never done, to allow that name in you also, through you, to be put on the lives of people around and about you, that in His name you can see transformation and change in the world around and about us. For our church, we've just taken a, a received our annual Heart for the House offering. People have given so generously. And what does it mean? It means through that offering we can carry His name to do things that we're planning to do, like helping human trafficking victims in Thailand or working with Bijou over there in Vision Rescue in Mumbai, bringing a difference to educating, feeding, and equipping children for God. Yeah, now he's on a roll preaching not about Jesus again, but preaching about Hillsong future and to be able to do things like um, building a community center in a down slum type area a township in south africa through hillsong africa and we do it through carrying the name and we should never get selfish about the name that we carry it's the name above every other name it's the name above every other name and then why don't you preach him correctly and call the people there to penitent faith in christ for the forgiveness of their sins and tell them how he bled and died for them Carry that name well. Let's carry it well in Jesus' name. Yeah, you've carried it very poorly. <laughs> this sermon is a train wreck. You see, I'm I mean, every time you think it's over, it keeps going on. <laughs> this room is full of faithful people. Faithful people. In Revelation 3, Jesus, through the Apostle John, he talks about different types of churches. The first one he talks about is the church in Sardis, and he calls it the dead church. Anyone here from the dead church? And then another one is the church in Laodicea. He calls it the lukewarm church. But place between the dead church and the lukewarm church is the faithful church. It's in Philadelphia, the faithful church. And I love 
to see the promise of God toward the faithful church. You see, he tells them that though you have little strength, you have not denied my name. Can I read it to you? Finishing up now, but stick with us just a moment. In Revelation chapter 3, this is what it says. It says in verse 8, don't forget Jesus being to the faithful church. He said, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. And because they had not denied his name, it actually is literally, even though you have little strength, you have not denied my name. Even though the path is difficult, you have not denied my name. And the promise was, I will open doors for you that no man can shut. You'll go where you've never gone. You'll do what you've never done in Jesus. Yeah, you just stuck that into the text. Jesus was not saying you'll go where you've never gone or do what you've never done. That's not what that text says at all. You just stuck it in there. Assumers of the name. We're carriers of the name. He's put the name on us, but we're also contributors of the name. In other words, we pillars. I apologize again, the audio skipped. Making up the faithful church. In verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the house of my God. And he shall go out no more. Listen, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. What's the Lord saying? He's saying, these who are faithful, those who are pillars, I will write my name on you. I will write my name. I will put my name on you. The name that's above every other name. The name that's described as higher than angels. The name which makes him higher than all his companions, it says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9. The name which can literally break down the power of demons. The name by which we heal the sick. The name that's as exclusive as it is inclusive. As wide as it is narrow. As personal as it is powerful. That can take you where you've never gone cause you to do what you've never done there is no other name but the name yeah, here we go again with the star trek thing you know going where you've never gone before jesus it's as strong as it is beautiful it's the greatest name of all the greatest name of all as strong as it is beautiful it's a lovely lovely name the name of jesus it's a lovely lovely name from heaven above Dispelling the clouds of doubt and fear, filling our saddened hearts with cheer. It's a lovely, lovely name. The name I love. Do you love the name of Jesus? Would you stand with me around that name, Jesus? This is what I want you to do, church. Conference. Don't leave yet, will you? We're just going to sing for a moment about the name Jesus. All One right. We're done. We're done. I think you get the point. So that was a jumbled mess, and the uh, blender bender was uh, in full force, and even using thesis antithesis to come up with some weird synthesis of something that the Bible doesn't say. That's the first time I've ever seen that employed. Wow. What? A train wreck.
And like I've been saying, what the Scripture text actually says is so much better than what these Bible twisters are saying that it says. It's not that Jesus wants to give you a roomy and spacious and take you on a broad road. (laughs) No, it's that he has bled and died for your sins. Repent and be forgiven. That was the message of Peter in both Acts 3 and 4. And uh, Brian Houston, for all the time that he took up preaching, clearly had no time for that message and was more interested in, you know, just saying the name, the name, the name, the name, the name, and never really proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, the way Jesus said to do in Luke chapter 24. Quite the mess. What did you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.